Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Signal from Jano Media. As we continue to wend our merry way through the world of content, understanding why people make it, why people love it, why it's important, what its purpose is, we find ourselves in the stylish and comfortable surroundings of the Centre for Broadcast, what's it called? The Centre for Broadcast and Journalism at Nottingham Trent Un University, talking to John Collins, who is senior lecturer there. Hosting the podcast this week is our very own Matt Wallace, who's not only founder of Jano Media, but also an alumni of Nottingham Trent University. So a bit of a homecoming story for him this week. John talks to us all about his journey into lecturing and the changes that he's observed across the whole media landscape, really, over his career, and how weaving those observations into the teaching on a vocational course like the one he lectures on really makes the job different year on year. They also talk about the Jano Media Award, which is a fund, a bursary that we at Jano are very proud to provide the university with each year to be awarded to a podcaster of promise. This year, the award was snatched up by Angie Elisunde, and she's already got three episodes out of her podcast, Two and Two. And we'll put all the links into the show notes for this episode. Right, over to you, Matt. Very true. On a Very podcast. true. For the benefit of the listener, tell us who you are, what you do, where we are, most importantly, and tell us all about something to do with the Centre for Broadcast Journalism at Nottingham Trent University. Yeah, so I'm John Collins. I'm a senior lecturer uh, here at the Centre for Broadcasting and Journalism, which is within the Department of Journalism and Media, part of the School of Arts and Humanities at Nottingham Trent University. We're on our city campus. We are in the Centre for Broadcasting and Journalism, and we are in what we call Radio Studio 3. It's our sort of flagship radio and podcasting studio. It's one of five radio studios here at the centre. There's a full television studio and gallery downstairs. And we are what's described by the accrediting body, the, the BJTC, the Broadcast Journalism Training Council, as the gold standard for the training of broadcast journalism in the UK. So we're training students on unashamedly vocational courses. Lots of transferable skills, yes. Degree courses with an academic underpinning, absolutely. But we are teaching and training students to go and work in the media industry. Not theorise it, not talk about it, not critique it. They can do all of those things but to be in it, to go and be in it, to shape it, to change it, to contribute to it, to be the future of the media industry in the UK. So you're an academic by trade now. You're a lecturer here. That's what pays the bills. That's what pays the bills, but you're a man with many strings to his bow. And you mentioned vocational routes through courses like this or vocational um, intentions behind the, the learning practices at the university. Tell me what you were doing before you found yourself being a lecturer here, though. So if we spin back 20 years... I was a student here as well. I did my master's in radio journalism here back in 2003, 2004. And then I've been away and I've had my career in predominantly radio and a little bit of television journalism as well. And my whole career is based around embedding vocational opportunities within degree courses. Although it was only sort of 10 to 12 years from my graduating here to my returning to teach here, I'd been really fortunate through good people um, investing time and opportunities in me through a spell of freelancing, through taking on and seeking out new challenges myself. 
and through being lucky enough to be in commercial radio and local radio at a time when it was being really well funded and resourced, that I'd done a lot of things. I'd done crime and court reporting. I'd done sports commentary. Um, I'd done an awful lot. I think I read my 10,000th news bulletin about two weeks ago. I went back to BBC Radio Stoke for a day of freelance. And I'm a person that likes to keep copious You've notes. You've got a logbook, have you? I've got kind of a logbook of which stations I've been at on which days and how many bulletins roughly I did while I was there. And I think I read my 10,000th news bulletin. But I'm always saying that to the students, you know, when, they, when they've done something here. And then I say, well, look, first of all, let's make yours better. And my last resort is always, well, this is how I would have done it. Um, I mean, at a macro level then, journalism is your, your passion, your interest, okay? Is radio the micro for you? Is, is radio the, the niche within that broader journalistic sphere that you have a real love and passion for and wanted to focus on as far as your career goes? And is it still that case within the, within the classroom as well? That's a really good question because I actually think it might be the other way around. Yeah. So it is true that when I was sort of five, six, seven years old, if you threw me a piece of paper and a crayon, it was much more likely I was going to write and design a newspaper front page than I was going to draw you a picture. So right from a very early age, I loved telling stories, but I was only really interested if the story was true. I didn't watch, this is quite a bizarre thing, but I didn't, even now when it comes to the selection of films, when it comes to the selection of podcasts that I consume, when it comes, I'm much more interested if the story is true. So I've always had a real interest in, in fact over fiction, in documentary over drama. But as a teenager, I fell in love with radio. I admire journalists. I have an incredible passion for journalism. I think it's a really, really powerful vehicle for social change and holding power to account. But I love radio. I love audio. And I also love sport. And it was sport that was the window that made me first fall in love with radio. So it's when I think about falling in love with radio, I'm sat in a sunny field outside my mum and dad's caravan on a farm just outside Thirst in Yorkshire. And I am obsessively listening to Test Match Special and Five Lives football commentaries. And I'm falling in love with Christopher Martin Jenkins and Pat Murphy uh, and uh, Brian Johnston and Roddy Forsyth. And when I start doing my paper rounds, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, I start listening to breakfast radio and afternoon radio because I've always also loved having a few quid in my pocket. So I was doing both, both ends of the school day, morning paper round, afternoon paper round. And that was a great time to start listening to radio properly because there was Johnny Vaughan and there was Chris Evans at breakfast on Radio 1 and... Radio One was changing and being refocused for people like me. The smashy and nicey days were over. Matthew Bannister and Trevor Dan had come in and got it by the scruff of the neck. And they were, Mark and Lard were there and, and Kevin Greening was there. And these were the last days of, of Steve Wright and Simon Mayo and Mark Goodyear and Gary Davies and the start of careers for Chris Moyles on early breakfast. It was a really exciting time to be listening to British radio. And I can remember listening to those shows, I mean, in part inspired by sort of zoo radio that had come over from America and thinking, these guys are being paid to do that. 
this is their job. Um, and it was quite late in the piece that I put the two loves together and realized there was such a thing as a radio journalist that I could put my, my sort of long-held love of, of newspapers and storytelling and the news cycle and current affairs and journalism, and I could put it with my new love uh, of audio, and that actually might be my job. And there's a very many moment when I've been sat in a radio studio at a big radio station thinking, this turned out okay. This is kind of what, these are the rooms you wanted yeah. to be in. I'm pleased to hear it because obviously you've, you've done a lot you know, and to have that picture, I quite like the idea that you you, you presented there, which is you know you saw uh, a goal, you could envision it in many ways, and you've made very substantial moves in, in doing that, and now obviously sharing that passion and passing on your own experiences to I'm going to call them youngsters, but they're not youngsters, are they? Not students, always. not yeah. always, but you know students that are coming and finding their way here to Nottingham Trent University and enrolling on courses that you're privilege enough to to teach i know you do regard it as a privilege um, to do that um you're getting to share all of those things with them you touched on a couple of things when you were talking though, that i just want to pull out a couple of threads on you mentioned change a couple of times you gave some examples there about the ways in which radio changed and there was an evolution uh, a shaking up a, a um, reimagining the conventions as it were as to what broadcast maybe was particularly within the, the radio sphere podcasting now much like the one that we're doing now is probably a relatively new platform as it were in terms of the overall span of spoken audio and broadcast um to what extent really has the university grabbed hold of that um emerging evolving convention changing idea within the industry and developed courses like the ones that you teach i think podcasting at the moment is one of this university's buzzwords so I teach on a on an undergraduate module, which is uh, about to begin its third iteration. It's going to be the third academic year uh, where we've run an undergraduate podcasting module. Next week, we should confirm our postgraduate podcasting module, which will be taught on our postgraduate degrees here. Next September, we'll launch our brand new MA in sports journalism, which again will have podcasting as an option within it. Last summer, I was asked to deliver a, a two-day podcasting summer school for our own staff. There was such a desire for our researchers to want to have a new platform to share the research that they're working on, for our uh, academics to produce synchronous or often asynchronous audio content, better audio content, which will engage their learners, which they might use to introduce learners to the course, which they might use to engage prospective students online. Now, we, we could have a really philosophical debate here about whether everything that they wanted to do at the end of this podcasting course was a podcast or not, but it certainly was how they saw it. There is this sense now, perhaps misguidedly, that if you sit in front of a microphone and you record some audio and then you release it, that's a podcast. Well, that's not always true necessarily, but this huge desire for them to do that. Then there's a whole other side of interest in podcasting in higher education institutions. And at the moment, this is driven by the rise of AI. So as academics start to move away from setting traditional essays, because they want something that is more future-proofed, as I often hear them describe, they want podcasts to be their method of assessment. 
They want to hear students discuss key topics and crucial things on their module and produce, you know, a guided, scripted piece of audio content. We are predominantly on the broadcast journal. We teach two undergraduate courses here, BA Journalism and BA Broadcast Journalism. There's a lot of overlap between those two courses and where they differ really is how the journalistic content that we're teaching people to produce reaches its audience. BA Journalism is focused on traditional newspaper brands, digital journalism, written journalism, online and a physical print product. BA Broadcast Journalism is really has a greater focus on your traditional television uh, and radio brands. But they are really now audio and video brands. And where podcasting is important is it unites both of those courses. Some of the most exciting work I feel around podcasting at the moment is being done by traditional newspaper brands that weren't necessarily previously present in the audio or video sphere, or certainly not to an extent. But if we thought of really well-produced, really slick, really high-end podcasts, we would think of the Daily from the New York Times. We would think of some of the things that the Financial Times is producing. We might talk about the Guardian Football Daily um, or some of the Guardian's sort of daily news podcasts that are produced in that area um, as well. We might talk about some of the things that the Times uh, is doing. As and, that's, and that's not just, sorry to interrupt, that's not just them falling into step and thinking, oh, you know, this is the thing. We've got to produce a podcast because everybody else is. They've, those those institutions, those publications have grabbed and realised the value of the medium, right? It's not podcasting for podcasting's sake. It's an actual appreciation and understanding of the value that it will bring to their traditional readership, readership and now listenership, right? I think there's definitely a case of them wanting to follow where they believe their audience to be. And they, they have seen the huge shift in podcast download consumption. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, they want to follow whichever advertising revenue graph is going up. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the ones that are going up at the moment, podcasting is definitely, definitely one of them. Um, we're talking about brands who have seen a, a huge decline. Uh, in the consumption of what has been their traditional product for, in some cases, hundreds of years. And it's been a very, very steep decline in certain cases. Um, so I definitely think uh, that they view podcasts as a way of engaging a, let's call them an, an audience, um, that they they may, maybe aren't any longer going to be able to get to with their traditional daily release printed product. We'd... I am now teaching a generation that doesn't particularly understand the concept of appointment to view, doesn't understand why you would ever want to wait for something to be released necessarily at a certain time each day, wants episode two to be available straight off the back of episode one, wherever possible, because they, they want to binge, consume great content there's a there's a challenge for for newspaper brands in there um who are used to working to sort of daily uh deadlines but the audience has changed consumption patterns have changed audience expectations have changed and ultimately it doesn't matter whether you're a radio station television station a newspaper you've got to react to the change in behavior of your audience 
And then institutions like this one have to remain equally reactive, right? You've got to be mindful of what's going on out there so that you're teaching vocational courses, to use your own terminology there, you know, offering opportunities and learning experiences that are going to remain relevant. Because it's a fast-moving landscape, right? It's a fast-changing uh, industry and area. I was sat in this very room last Saturday showing around prospective students and their parents for next year. And on those open days, I always say, you're looking to come here in roughly 12 months. You're then looking to graduate from here in another three years after that. 20% of you are going to go into jobs that don't exist yet. So when we talk about transferable skills and trying to future-proof the course, I started here in the summer of 2014. I didn't know what an Instagram influencer manager was, <laughs> but I have graduates now who work in Instagram influencer management. I was on the phone to one the other day. She said, I I've got to go, John. Um, I've got Reese Witherspoon on the other line. We gave her some handbags earlier in the week, and she's just checking how many posts. I'm like, if Reese Witherspoon was on the other line, I'd drop this call as well. Um, one of my recent graduates now looks after TikTok for UEFA. That wasn't a job in 2014. It wasn't even a platform in 2014. Um, you know, we look at the rise of augmented reality, virtual reality. We look at the rise of AI. Um, there are jobs that students who are on these courses right now in their first year of their undergraduate course, perhaps they're going to graduate in the summer of uh, 2026 and they will go into roles which as of right now don't exist. Nobody does that job and they'll be doing it. So the mechanics, the methods, the platforms, the technology changes, okay? What stays constant? What do you think is the fundamental underpinning that will always be there within uh, an institution like this or a, a, within a centre for broadcast journalism, for example? That the story is always king. That it doesn't matter which piece of technology you've got in front of you, how you're editing it together, how good the camera is that you took the photos to accompany it. A brilliant story is still a brilliant story. You know, there is a reason why people still go and watch Shakespeare plays. There is a reason why when we want to describe something that is epic, we go back to Greek and Roman epics for the terms that we want to use. A great story, content, great content, will always be the king. Te technology can change. Styles of how that story might be told will change. Whether or not you want your storytelling to be take place in a, an area that's interactive or whether it's going to be more of a didactic, top-down telling of that story. All of that, that's fashion. And I'm a firm believer that it's, that it's cyclical. There's some changes that have happened in media recently which I think will never be undone but a lot of it is cyclical things come into fashion and fall out of fashion again but a good story will always be a good story sticking with podcasting then okay i should explain slightly how this conversation has come about and why i'm here and the and the, the background to this i like you uh um and what's the latin here i've got to try and remember this am i an alumnus you are you, we because are I'm, alumni you are an alumnus because i'm male because you're singular and male, yes. And an alumna is the female. Correct. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So we, as a pair, are alumni of the institution. I was here from 99 to 2002. Um, I studied a degree in communication studies. That's right, because I said I wouldn't come till you'd left. So <laughs> that was I arrived right. yes. in 2002. Well, no, 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 I was still here after that, because I ended up then working um, at uh, the Students' Union, 
I did two years there as a sabbatical officer, 2003 to four, which would have been your That was where we year. overlapped, yeah. Yes, I was your student union president in that storied year of 2003 to four. Yeah. It all went downhill. Um, and then I ended up working at the university in the corporate affairs department doing internal comms and then going on to become a press officer after that, which I did all the way up until 2011 when I left and did some charity work raising money for Cancer Research UK and then set up the company that um, I have now, which is Jano Media. And we, as Jano Media, have been in touch with the university. It started a couple of years ago, conversations began, because we wanted to support, in some way, the institution that definitely means so much to me for everything that it gave me in my education and then my career afterwards. And because we have got podcasting as part of what we do at Jano Media, we wanted to, in some way, support the idea that we could invest, I guess, in the futures and careers of budding podcasters here at the Centre for Broadcast Journalism. So when you said, you know, we've got a podcast module here and we're looking to teach and train people within this medium and that area, it was a no-brainer. We wanted to, in some way, support you. So the Jano Media Award was set up. We're on the second year of it now, aren't we? we That's had, right, yeah. Um, two lads, Harry and Robin. Um, last year who produced the Freshers Handbook which was, was great and then this year we've got Angie Olasunde I think I've said her surname correctly you have yeah oh, right that's okay um, who's producing the podcast called Two and Two um, this year which she's doing absolutely brilliantly with she's taken the, the award that was given um, it's £5,000 award and rarely have I seen somebody with such driver determination to make a go of a project that they have, to have a clear vision of, you know, I'm going to get this done, I'm going to use this money well, I'm going to produce something to be proud of, and that serves a purpose in the story, cycling it back to what you were saying, the, the story there of, of what she wants to tell. She's interviewing some incredible people, artists, actors, uh, reformed prisoners, having conversations with real people out in the real world and we're really excited to see what the the two and two podcast is going to go on to become um because i think she's got intentions to keep rolling with it you know in perpetuity as well as far as she can at least beyond the life cycle of the the award or the budget that is there well like many podcasts it's it's uh, the initial idea the premise is super simple but it's also incredibly broad and it allows you to take it in so many different directions. There's no reason why she shouldn't roll forward. Exactly. It. And that idea, that premise and idea is when you and I often, we talk once or twice a year when the applications come in for the award and we discuss um, kind of what the strengths of the applicants are. Um, it's based around their final year project, isn't it? So the students that are producing their final year project for the podcasting module then if they choose to, can submit that project as an application right, yeah. for, for the award. Coming back to Angie, the thing that stuck out about her application, and if you remember how it was written on the sheet, on the spreadsheet that was sent to me by the university, line one, you know, why are you applying for this award? Okay, And it said there, not in bold, but it almost it stands out in bold in my mind when I read it, I deserve this award because, and I thought there's no better start to an application as far as I'm concerned for an award like this She's put herself right at the front there for me. She's clearly asserted very early on, I work hard. I deserve this. I want this. And then everything after that point just made it even clearer that she was a suitable winner for the award. Because it's worth making the point that because of the way, and we won't get into the intricacies of this, but because of the way that the money moves through the university, this is described as a bursary. 
but it's merit-based. It's, it's a prize uh, as much as it is anything else. So it is all about who deserves this the most? What is the best idea, the best pilot episode, the one that's got the most scope to progress? There's one really, in, there's lots of interesting lessons and we'll come on to those, I'm sure. But there's one interesting lesson that having this bursary as part of the module teaches the students because it allows, what I ultimately grade them on is their pilot episode. How good is their pilot episode? How good is the story? How good is the idea? What are the production standards like? How well is it presented? How, what, how much work have they put in to secure the guests? What do they get out of those guests? Is there a, is there a clear narrative? Is there a story arc? Does it make me want to listen to the end? Is there a clear resolution that we're building to? So I'm grading them on the finished product. You are selecting the prize winner, not necessarily on the finished product, but on the scope for what the idea and the premise might become. That is such an important thing for me to be able to explain to them in the classroom and have a clear example of. I'm going to mark you on how well you make episode one. Don't think for a second that will automatically mean that you win the prize because a great pilot isn't the same as having something which is sustainable over a, a longer period. In a sense, it's a little bit like commissioning drama. You, you can make an amazing pilot or sitcom or whatever it might be. But if the commissioners don't see any story arc, they don't see any character development, they don't see anywhere for it to go, they might not commission it into a 12 part. We do an eight part, don't we, initially? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we're looking for slightly different things. And I love being able to play with that in the classroom. We've been really thrilled to see the way in which, I mean, the strength of the application, they're all good applications that we get coming in. The winners obviously stand out as being strong, deserving recipients of the award. But we should mention, this is in its infancy still, as an award goes. It's absolutely our intention to maintain this bursary and this award moving forward for as long as we can, you know, keep feeling that it is adding value, not to us, but to the students and to the university as part of their learning experience. When we last spoke and we were, we were talking through the applications that we had in front of us, we were talking about it being a potential springboard. Because you mentioned the crossover period, that leaving as a grad, going into industry, opportunities, challenges, everything's there. Maybe there's something that could be placed there for those that have got some uncertainty but aspiration to be a podcaster. Could the Jano Media Award be a springboard into that? And I think that's what we hope for with that. And we're excited to see what it will develop not in terms of just the content, but how it will develop the person mm -hmm. as well. That's what we really want to see them getting the beginnings of their career from this opportunity and taking things that they learned in much the same way that you started at a radio station somewhere you know, all those years ago, but there are still lessons being learned or lessons that you learned from that that you've carried through to your career now. Mm -hmm. that's, what we, that's what we hope for. Well, alongside the podcast, Angie's started to pick up some work at, at BBC she has. World Service. Yeah. I don't think that happens without the confidence boost that winning the award gives to her. I think the confidence that she was imbued with upon winning the award and then the support that she's received from yourself, that rubber stamp of, oh, okay, the industry likes this. It's not just my tutors who thought this was okay. The industry likes it too. 
I think we took something which she probably saw as being three, four, five years in her future and just brought it forward for her. I think it's already worked as a springboard. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that. I think that's, we were always hoping that there would just be. There are two things. It doesn't matter how good my equipment is. It doesn't matter how good your tutor is on a vocational course at university. There are two things that you cannot replicate in a classroom. You cannot give them an audience and you cannot give them a consequence. And so one of the reasons why as an institution and particularly here within the journalism department, we want to work with industry as much as I can. You can deliver both of those things. You can deliver both of those things into the classroom. And an audience and a consequence are ultimately what your journalism gets judged by out in industry. Now, I'm not saying we want first-year undergraduates through the door producing public-facing work within the first three to six weeks. Of course you don't. But at some point, we have to find a way. We pride ourselves on trying to replicate industry as close as we can. If we were to walk out this door, there's a huge poster on the wall. It says, think of yourself as a journalist that just happens to be a student. And that is the whole motto of it. No, you're not a student journalist. You're a journalist that just happens to be a student. Um, but in a classroom, it's hard to provide an audience. It's hard to provide a consequence. But by working on live briefs, by having bursary opportunities like this, by making our websites public-facing, our social media channels are public-facing, when we record a television program, once we've legaled it, it goes onto YouTube. Um, so we're trying as much as possible to create an audience and a consequence. Now, if I tell them that their deadline for today's news is four o'clock and it's got to go on air, 95% of the time that happens. But on the 5%, the 1 in 20 where it doesn't, it's not much I can actually do. But if we work with industry, there's a, there's a consequence to missing deadlines. And that's a really important lesson to learn for the future world of work. And those connections to industry are, are long and storied as far as this university goes, aren't they? This, not just in this academic pocket of the university, but right across. I mean, it's an ex-polytechnic. Mm -hmm. uh, so it became a university in 1992, and up until that point was um, Trent Polytechnic. Um, and the polytechnic model was connections to industry, vocational courses, routes to work. That was the intention behind it. And then in becoming a university, it seems to have always been that strong thread that was kept hold of, you know, links with industry, routes to work, vocational courses, that kind of stuff. Describe some of the links that the university has got within this area, though, within the Centre for Broadcast Journalism or Broadcasting and Journalism for, for connections with industry. So we have a setup that we refer to as the, the CBJ Consortium. Um, so that means um, that we have a sort of a, a panel or a working group which is made up from people from this university department, the BBC, ITV, uh, Reach PLC, uh, Channel 4, uh, amongst many others. And every time we consider making any substantial changes to our practical teaching, we go and ask them, what do you want more of? What do you now need less of? What skills are you taking on graduates and they don't have? What skills have they got, but you could do with them being even better? So they don't touch the academic modules. They don't touch that academic underpinning, the robust academic. This isn't a training course. It is a degree. They are studying modules in sociology, modules in law, modules in uh, politics. But they sit alongside really practical hands-on modules. And the consortium is allowed to help us shape the practical modules. Doesn't, doesn't you know, uh, undermine anything that we do from an academic point of view. 
So that's a positive thing that we do. We've obviously got we've got long-standing work experience arrangements with um, with Bauer Media, um, with Global Radio. So Bauer, the second biggest commercial radio operator in the uh, in the UK, uh, owning the greatest hits uh, brand and Kerrang and many others. Global Radio owns pretty much all of the others: uh, Capital, Heart, XFM, Classic, LBC, Smooth. I'm going to come back to your use of the word vocational. Um, because I've really changed my mind on it. So when I was a practicing working journalist myself, very many of the best journalists I worked with had never been anywhere near a university. And I didn't necessarily feel that journalism had to be taught in a university environment. I still don't feel it has to be. But I think certain universities have now got very good at doing it. But one of the things that we have to always defend ourselves from is this kind of vocational tag. If you are having that level of focus on skills training, if you are having that level of focus on one particular industry, does that really belong in a university environment? Is it a proper course to be taught at university? And my answer to that is always twofold. I mean, one is very simple. Well, journalism is a profession in the same way that very many other professions have bespoke courses at universities. But I think there's a certain, I wouldn't go as far as saying hypocrisy, but a certain unevenness. Because nobody asks that question of law. Nobody asks that question of medicine. Nobody asks that question of architecture. Nobody asks that question of dentistry. They are unashamedly vocational unashamedly vocational and have been present in universities for hundreds of years in some cases and never have to defend their place there. Why should journalism have to answer that question? What transferable skills have you got from a dentistry degree? If you do seven years of a dentistry degree and decide you don't want to be a dentist, I'd say you've got a problem. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'd say you probably have. <laughs> dentistry, medicine, law, architecture are also vocational degrees we just don't put them in the box because they've been here for longer i agree i i do agree i mean there is the point to be made about the wider student experience that whole coming through everything that i mean i've got a degree in communication studies okay which at the time whether you can remember this or not it was one of those degrees that was up there in the daily mail rankings as a as a mickey mouse degree and i think it was born out of at the time, there was a lot of funding around from the Higher Educational Funding Council for England, HEFKE. They were giving money to to universities to broaden and diversify course portfolios. Communication studies is still a fantastic degree at this university, just to be clear. But there was no vocational direction to it. What I got was an appreciation and an understanding of all of the nuances that come from sociology, British cultural studies, linguistics, media, all of that kind of stuff that contributed in some way to what I think I've used to steer and define my career path, setting up a business, working in content creation like I do. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's odd that that kind of vocational word is used specifically for courses like this one when it isn't applied to what I may be regarded as the, the higher educational stalwarts the gold standard, of yeah. the of, yeah the gold standard is a good way of putting it 
that student experience, though, which is what I was talking about, that's where the real value, I think, comes from, particularly at a, a university like Nottingham Trent. It's an amazing city oh, in which to be a student. It really it's an is. amazing city, full stop. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of final questions. What are you listening to at the moment, podcast-wise? What's on your playlist? Okay, so I'm a huge fan of Freakonomics Radio. Okay, fell in love with the the Freakonomics book, Stephen Levitt, Stephen Dubner, the economist and journalist who who paired up to uh, apply economic theory um, to areas of life where it wouldn't normally be applied. So that book's got brilliant chapter titles like Why Do Drug Dealers Always Live With Their Mum? Uh, Why Do Sumo Wrestlers Cheat? Uh, and things like that. And uh, that, So I love that, and that's uh, gone off in all kinds of directions now. I love food. I've curated a, a whole list for you before, haven't I, around food. So um, big fan of Jay Rayner's Out to Lunch. That's got a new presenter coming, I think, so it'd be interesting to see how that settles down uh, when Jay Rayner steps away from it. Um, don't think you can talk about podcasting in the UK at the moment without um, talking about Shagmarad Annoyed. Went to see the live tour of that last night with Chris and Rosie. I mean, they put up a photo of how that podcast began. Yeah. I think it's how most podcasts began. It was them, two microphones, a laptop, and their kitchen table. We were in the Motor Point Arena last night with 9,000 people <laughs> hanging on their every word, you know, shouting back their catchphrases to them, uh, taking part in the, the, you know, the furniture of the show, singing along with the jingles. It's like, goodness me, this is... This is really powerful. It was almost, in a very positive, non, it was cult-like. Really? They all, everybody in that arena thought they were in the club. And that's long been a kind of measure of what makes great radio, what makes great audio, isn't it? should feel like you're in a club, but it should also feel like the very first day you joined the club, you were welcome. Terry Wogan was brilliant at that. You know, his show felt like a club, but it also felt like if you just stumbled in for the first time, you were already part of that club. It's a milestone for podcasters as well, isn't it? When they take it live. Yeah. Okay. When they take it on tour, that's kind of a really defining moment in its popularity within its cult-like status in, in many ways. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see, and this isn't doubting anybody's skill or talent in any way, but it'll be interesting to see how they then keep going what we might call the regular podcast. Mm. You know, when you've, you know, when you've taken something really big how does it then sound? How does it then feel? How do you then get yourself up for it when it perhaps is just the two of you once more uh, in a room? When last week it was, you know, thousands and thousands of people involved in the process. I used to love the podcast uh, Blood on the Tracks. Right. Colin Murray hosted it. Um, it was produced by uh, the, the, the same producer that produces Fighting Talk uh, on Five Live. And it was um, elements of Desert Island Discs. You know, people used to bring in what their favourite tracks were, but they were was um, they chose them based on categories. You know, what would you have if it was your boxing walkout song? Uh, what would you have uh, playing in the hearse on your on your drive to the crematorium, whatever it might be? But uh, that got big, and they did live shows. They never came back. I don't know if the two things are linked. But they did two nights. I think it was live at the, the, the Hammersmith Apollo. I think it was from memory. Podcast never came back after that. What else am I listening to right now? Um, I've been listening to quite a lot of Russell Howard's Wonderbox. Okay. Uh, Ed Gamble and uh, James Acaster off menu. 
Oh yes, I was listening to that for a little while. I, I, not that I fell out of love with it. I just haven't uh, haven't caught up with it. It's the ultimate example of something that I um, probably my students are bored of me saying. This idea <laughs> will rise and fall on the quality of your guest. Yeah. Yes, we spoke about this when I came here last, didn't we? Yes. Absolutely. So they did uh, the one that they did with Bob Mortimer is yeah. a piece of audio genius. Uh, the one that they did with um, Kathy Burke is similar. The one with Stanley Tucci is very good. And then they had on Paul Foote the other week. Brilliant stand-up comedian. You know, the, he's the answer to the pub quiz question. In the year Peter Kay came second in the Perrier Award, who won? Peter Kay didn't win. Paul Foote beat him. But he didn't work. It's the first time I've ever turned it off. And I was on a plane. My other options were few and far between. <laughs> I was four hours into my 10-hour flight to Beijing, and I turned it off. Because for me, it didn't quite work. He was just too surreal. He was just too off the wall for the format of that particular podcast. And that's saying something alongside James Acaster. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> really? Absolutely. Uh, on the more sort of documentary style of things, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the BBC's uh, sort of retrospective look back on the Brixton riots, Flames on the Front Line. I thought that was really good. Uh, I enjoyed the um, the Arctic Monkeys podcast that BBC did not so long back. Uh, Believe the hype, uh, really, really good. I binged that. You've got quite the appetite, haven't you, for content? I mean, your your your, your playlist is is vast. I'm guessing you've got a heck of a lot on there, and rightly so. Yeah, it's pretty varied. I listen to a, to an awful lot. You know, there's some very obvious ones on there. I've listened to. Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett. What do you think of that? How do you think that's progressing? For me, and I'm not looking to cause a stir here in any way, my worry with it, as much as I loved it, and still do to a certain point, is I'm almost worried it's becoming a bit too tabloidy because when I see him in my feed, it almost reads now like the front page of the Express. You know, how to improve your memory, how to lose weight, how to blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of almost a bit too clickbaity. The conversation and the quality of conversation is still exemplary. He's a fantastic interviewer and the strength of the guests is great. But the delivery seems to be falling short for me a little bit in the way that I'm seeing it. We used to talk about in the radio industry that the biggest trap that any radio show could fall into is when you started to make it for the people that were in the room. And I think one of the biggest challenges that podcasters face right now is social media is crucial to success on any grand scale but you can't design the structure and the recording of your podcast around the creation of what's going to be the social media short you should just make a brilliant podcast and then the social media short can be selected afterwards and sometimes i, I like i agree with your use of the word tabloidy sometimes i feel like the whole podcast has been designed around the creation of the 30 to 45 second video clip that they'll put out on social media. That's where the real revenue is. Quite possibly. But the revenue also relies on there being a, a, an audience that sticks with the podcast through thick and thin. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Where do you stand on Joe Rogan? Um, on his head? <laughs> I was going to say neck. Um, <laughs> again, I think he has the capability of being a very talented interviewer. I think he has... That skill, which is shared by Chris Evans, which is sometimes shared by Graham Norton, 
which is sometimes shared by Amal Rajan, of I think there are interviews where he gets 10 to 15% more out of that person than a very many other people might get out of them. That doesn't mean you then necessarily like what's in that 10 to 15%. Yeah. Um, I will I'll hold my hands up and say it's not a podcast that I've consumed a huge amount. No. It's one where the social media clips and shorts tend to make me not want to watch the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, I was led there, in, and I'm not an avid listener by any stretch, but, you know, the, the it's the guests that take me there rather than the host, you know, in conversation with, I think, right, I'm interested in that. And the, the diversity of the guests that he has, there's no doubt from beekeepers to Jordan Peterson, mm. for example. There's a huge range there. What, so, the other thing you'll pick up from the ones I've listed is, at heart, I'm still an audio boy. Yes. Yeah. Almost everything I've listed there is is defined and dominated by the audio product. I'm not watching podcasts on YouTube. Not through choice, it's just that's not how I consume. Are the students? Yes. Yeah? Yes. And the studio that we're sitting in now, refurbished this summer, furniture arrived two to three weeks ago. The very next thing that gets installed here are 4G widescreen webcams so that we can visualise radio and we can visualise podcasts. Because that's where Angie's taken hers. Yes. For, for two and two, she's she's very deliberately made the decision. If I was as young and fresh-faced as Angie, I'd make my <laughs> podcast visual as well. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Okay. Well, John, listen, it's been a real pleasure having a chat with you. Thanks for, you know, allowing us to, um, to be involved in offering the Jano Media Award. We're delighted and thrilled to see everything that the recipients have been doing with it. Long may it continue. Best of luck with everything that's coming for your new postgrad course. Yeah, well. new MA in sports journalism. Yeah, yes. So a real passion there for you. Yeah, that's combining all three of my loves into my work. I I feel like a very lucky boy. Okay. Well, best of luck with it all, and thanks again. And we'll uh, we'll be talking soon again. I'm sure. Thank you for the support. It it genuinely makes a real difference to the classroom and the students. It's our pleasure. Thank you for listening to Signal from Jano Media. If you'd like to know more about Nottingham Trent University, the courses there, the Centre for Broadcasting and Journalism, or indeed the Jano Media Award, we can fill you in on all that stuff. So please get in touch. And again, we'll put the links to Angie's podcast, Two and Two, in the show notes for this episode. So go and check that out. And finally, if you would like any support with your podcast or your ideas for podcasts, we are all ears. We are literally a field of corn. We love talking about that stuff, so do not hesitate. Get in touch, and we'd love to hear from you. You can get to us through the contact form on the company website. I think that's it. I think I've said everything I need to. Let me just check my notes. Yeah. We'll see you next time for another episode of Signal from Jano Media. Bye.